Clark was far away when we first saw him, but there was no such thing as mistaking him. He has the rare peculiarity of standing by himself. He is peculiarly steep, too, and is also most oddly shaped. He towers into the sky like a colossal wedge, with the upper third of its blade bent a little to the left. The broad base of this monster wedge is planted upon a grand glacier-paved alpine platform whose elevation is ten thousand feet above sea level. As the wedge itself is some five thousand feet high, it follows that its apex is about fifteen thousand feet above sea level. So the whole bulk of this stately piece of rock, this sky-cleaving monolith, is above the line of eternal snow. Yet, while all its giant neighbors have the look of being built of solid snow from their waists up, the Matterhorn stands black and naked and forbidding the year round, or merely powdered or streaked with white in places, for its sides are so steep that the snow cannot stay there. Its strange form, its august isolation, and its majestic unkinship with its own kind make it, so to speak, the Napoleon of the mountain world. Grand, gloomy, and peculiar is a phrase which fits it as aptly as it fitted the great captain. Think of a monument a mile high standing on a pedestal of two miles high. This is what the Matterhorn is, a monument. Its office, henceforth, for all time, will be to watch and ward over the secret resting-place of the young Lord Douglas, who, in 1865, was precipitated from the summit over a precipice four thousand feet high, and never seen again. No man ever had such a monument as this before. The most imposing of the world's other monuments are but atoms compared to it. And they will perish, and their places will pass from memory. But this will remain. Footnote number 1. The accident which cost Lord Douglas his life, see chapter 12, also cost the lives of three other men. These three fell four-fifths of a mile, and their bodies were afterward found, lying side by side upon a glacier, whence they were borne to Zermatt, and buried in the churchyard. The remains of Lord Douglas have never been found. The secret of his sepulture, like that of Moses, must remain a mystery always. A walk from St. Nicholas to Zermatt is a wonderful experience. Nature is built on a stupendous plan in that region. One marches continually between walls that are piled into the skies, with their upper heights broken into a confusion of sublime shapes that gleam white and cold against the background of blue. And here and there one sees a big glacier displaying its grandeurs on the top of a precipice, or a graceful cascade leaping and flashing down the green declivities. There is nothing tame or cheap or trivial. It is all magnificent. That short valley is a picture-gallery of a notable kind, for it contains no mediocrities. From end to end the Creator has hung it with his masterpieces. We made Zermatt at three in the afternoon, nine hours out from St. Nicholas. Distance, by guidebook, twelve miles. By pedometer, seventy-two. We were in the heart and home of the mountain-climbers now, as all visible things testified. The snow-peaks did not hold themselves aloof in an aristocratic reserve. They nestled close around in a friendly, sociable way. Guides, with the ropes and axes and other implements of their fearful calling slung about their persons, roosted in a long line upon a stone wall in front of the hotel, 
and waited for customers sunburnt climbers in mountaineering costume and followed by their guides and porters arrived from time to time from breakneck expeditions among the peaks and glaciers of the high alps male and female tourists on mules filed by in a continuous procession hotelward bound from wild adventures which would grow in grandeur every time they were described at the english or american fireside and at last outgrow the possible itself we were not dreaming this was not a make-believe home of the alp-climber created by our heated imaginations no for here was mr girdlestone himself the famous englishman who hunts his way to the most formidable alpine summits without a guide i was not equal to imagining a girdlestone it was all i could do to even realize him while looking straight at him at short range i would rather face whole hyde parks of artillery than the ghastly forms of death which he has faced among the peaks and precipices of the mountains there is probably no pleasure equal to the pleasure of climbing a dangerous alp but it is a pleasure which is confined strictly to people who can find pleasure in it i have not jumped to this conclusion i have travelled to it per gravel train so to speak i have thought the thing all out and am quite sure i am right a born climber's appetite for climbing is hard to satisfy when it comes upon him he is like a starving man with a feast before him he may have other business on hand but it must wait mr girdlestone had had his usual summer holiday in the alps and had spent it in his usual way hunting for unique chances to break his neck his vacation was over and his luggage packed for england but all of a sudden a hunger had come upon him to climb the tremendous weisshorn once more for he had heard of a new and utterly impossible route up it his baggage was unpacked at once and now he and a friend laden with knapsacks ice-picks coils of rope and canteens of milk were just setting out they would spend the night high up among the snows somewhere and get up at two in the morning and finish the enterprise i had a strong desire to go with them but forced it down a feat which mr girdlestone with all his fortitude could not do even ladies catch the climbing mania and are unable to throw it off a famous climber of that sex had attempted the weisshorn a few days before our arrival and she and her guides had lost their way in a snowstorm high up among the peaks and glaciers and had been forced to wander around a good while before they could find a way down when this lady reached the bottom she had been on her feet twenty-three hours our guides hired on the gemmi were already at zermatt when we reached there so there was nothing to interfere with our getting up an adventure whenever we should choose the time and the object i resolved to devote my first evening in zermatt to studying up the subject of alpine climbing by way of preparation i read several books and here are some of the things i found out one's shoes must be strong and heavy and have pointed hobnails in them the alpenstock must be of the best wood for if it should break loss of life might be the result one should carry an axe to cut steps in the ice with on the great heights there must be a ladder for there are steep bits of rock which can be surmounted with this instrument or this utensil which could not be surmounted without it such an obstruction has compelled the tourist to waste hours hunting another route when a ladder would have saved him all trouble one must have from one hundred and fifty to five hundred feet of strong rope to be used in lowering the party down steep declivities which are too steep and smooth to be traversed in any other way one must have a steel hook on another rope 
a very useful thing, for when one is ascending and comes to a low bluff which is yet too high for the ladder, he swings this rope aloft like a lasso, the hook catches at the top of the bluff, and then the tourist climbs the rope, hand over hand, being always particular to try and forget that if the hook gives way he will never stop falling till he arrives in some part of Switzerland where they are not expecting him. Another important thing, there must be a rope to tie the whole party together with, so that if one falls from a mountain or down a bottomless chasm in a glacier, the others may brace back on the rope and save him. One must have a silk veil to protect his face from snow, sleet, hail, and gale, and colored goggles to protect his eyes from that dangerous enemy, snow-blindness. Finally, there must be some porters to carry provisions, wine, and scientific instruments, and also blanket-bags for the party to sleep in. I closed my readings with a fearful adventure which Mr. Wimper once had on the Matterhorn when he was prowling around alone five thousand feet above the town of Breil. He was edging his way gingerly around the corner of a precipice where the upper edge of a sharp declivity of ice-glazed snow joined it. This declivity swept down a couple of hundred feet into a gully which curved around and ended at a precipice eight hundred feet high, overlooking a glacier. His foot slipped, and he fell. He says, My knapsack brought my head down first, and I pitched into some rocks about a dozen feet below. They caught something, and tumbled me off the edge, head over heels, into the gully. The baton was dashed from my hands, and I whirled downward in a series of bounds, each longer than the last, now over ice, now into rocks, striking my head four or five times, each time with increased force. The last bound sent me spinning through the air in a leap of fifty or sixty feet, from one side of the gully to the other, and I struck the rocks, luckily, with the whole of my left side. They caught my clothes for a moment, and I fell back to the snow with motion arrested. My head fortunately came the right side up, and a few frantic catches brought me to a halt, in the neck of the gully and on the verge of the precipice. Baton, hat, and veil skimmed by and disappeared, and the crash of the rocks, which I had started, as they fell on to the glacier, told how narrow had been the escape from utter destruction. As it was, I fell nearly two hundred feet in seven or eight bounds. Ten feet more would have taken me in one gigantic leap of eight hundred feet on to the glacier below. The situation was sufficiently serious. The rocks could not be let go for a moment, and the blood was spurting out of more than twenty cuts. The most serious ones were in the head, and I vainly tried to close them with one hand, while holding on with the other. It was useless. The blood gushed out in blinding jets at each pulsation. At last, in a moment of inspiration, I kicked out a big lump of snow and stuck it as plaster on my head. The idea was a happy one, and the flow of blood diminished. Then, scrambling up, I got, not a moment too soon, to a place of safety, and fainted away. The sun was setting when consciousness returned, and it was pitch dark before the great staircase was descended. But, by a combination of luck and care, the whole four thousand seven hundred feet of descent to Breil was accomplished without a slip or once missing the way. His wounds kept him abed some days. Then he got up and climbed that mountain again. That is the way with a true Alp climber. The more fun he has, the more he wants. 
End of chapter 36